Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, and the Robert and Joseph Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Nathan Connolly. I'm Brian Bellow. And I'm Ed Ayers. Each week, Nathan, Ed, our colleague Joanne Freeman, and I, all historians, take a topic from the news, and we try to see how we got here. And we're going to start off today in 1947, flying over Mount Rainier in Washington State. And why is it we're up here, Nathan? And and who's flying this thing? It's all right. It's all right. We're in the plane (laughs) of a businessman named Ken Arnold. And we're actually out here helping with a recovery mission. A military plane went down somewhere in the mountains in Washington State, and a call went out um, to private pilots to go look for this plane. This is historian Jeffrey Kripal. Ken Arnold was one of these pilots that was flying around um, Washington State looking for a downed military plane. While Ken Arnold was in the air, he came upon something peculiar. Nine... Uh, objects flying in um, perfect formation, um, whizzing around the sky at speeds that he knew as a pilot were not possible for any ordinary plane. Since this happened in the early days of the Cold War, Arnold assumed they were enemy aircraft. Uh, The assumption was if the Soviets were going to bomb us, they were going to come from the Northwest. So he um, radioed in like a good patriot and reported exactly what he saw. But based on what he was seeing, Arnold wasn't so sure they were even aircraft at all. They were round and then they had a kind of manta ray-like tail Mm. uh, behind them. He said they flew at speeds no human pilot could survive and moved erratically, like fish or the tail of a kite. Word of Arnold's encounter spread throughout the aviation community and eventually to reporters who were eager to hear the details. One of them was a guy named Bill Beckett. And uh, when Arnold described what these objects looked like and how they were flying, he said they they skipped like a, like a saucer or a teacup across the water. In other words, they didn't mm-hmm. fly. They kind of skipped across the sky. And Beckett picked, picked that up, and it was Beckett actually that coined the phrase flying saucer. Nathan, you know, I could live with those flying saucers if I wasn't worried that they were being driven by alien invaders. <laughs> well, now, this is the Cold War, and there were certainly ideas and fears of invasion of various kinds, especially in the late 1940s. This is when people are building bomb shelters in their backyard. Um, And this is shortly after the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So there's tremendous fear around uh, nuclear warfare and tremendous fear around the Cold War. And so the idea of an extraterrestrial invasion, I think, was a very powerful way of expressing all of these anxieties and these fears. But Ken Arnold, who actually saw these things, drew other conclusions. Arnold did not believe that what he saw were mechanical. 
Mm. He didn't think that they were flying machines. He thought that they were alive and that they had emerged from some other world or some other dimension. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he even thought that they were emerging from some other world that was related to the place where we go and we die. So Mm. he had a kind of spiritual um, reading of what he witnessed. Kripal says this spiritual reading is often lost in a world that demands scientific proof. We've lost the ability to think about things in in spiritual or religious terms, and we can only understand things in scientific or technological ways. And so you you get these, these mythologies. So today on the show, we're talking about things in the sky we can't explain. Unidentified flying objects. He claims to have been taken into what he calls the mother wheel. And those are his words. Their bodies would, would rise from the dead. A UFO would, would come down and hover and pick them up with the tractor beam. Sometimes it's machine-like. Sometimes it's, it's plasma-like or a ball of light and completely changes how they think of the world. And even though these objects are unidentified, they can still tell us a lot about ourselves and about American history. We'll talk about why many African Americans view UFOs as friendly, why a group of Americans believed a spacecraft would take them to heaven, and why some people believe that a scientific framework may not be the best way to understand the UFO phenomenon. But first, we'll go back far before the Cold War began to November 18, 1896. On that day, there was an unusual news item in the Sacramento Bee. Last evening, between the hours of 6 and 7 o'clock in the year of our Lord, 1896, a most startling exhibition was seen in the sky in this city of Sacramento. People standing on the sidewalks saw coming through the sky over the housetops what appeared to them to be merely an electric arc lamp propelled by some mysterious force. People saw a big light in the sky. This is folklorist Thomas Bullard. And as it got closer, some people said they could see a dark form behind the light, a form like something that had wings. It came out of the east and sailed unevenly toward the southwest, dropping now nearer to the earth and now suddenly rising into the air again, as if the force that was whirling it through space was sensible of the dangers of collision with objects upon the earth. A few people even said they could hear voices coming down from the sky. Someone on the ship was supposed to have said, you know, lift her up, we're going to crash into that uh, steeple. And, (laughs) And the ship lifted up and went on. Most spectators didn't hear that particular exchange But hundreds of people did see the strange sight. The people of Sacramento tried to make sense of what they saw. In the meantime, the airship, as it became known, seemed to move on to other parts of the country. With each sighting, the winged airship took on a more defined form. Kind of a cigar-shaped gas bag, (laughs) usually with a basket underneath where the passengers were. And then there was always a, a, a big headlight in front of the thing and maybe several other lights attached to it. By May 1897, Bullard says, there were several thousand reports of mysterious airships. It got to the point where everybody wanted to see an airship. Any town that didn't see an airship 
it was just not up to date. So, <laughs> so literally every town tried to have one, apparently, and somebody would have to come forward and say they saw an airship. So to be considered a, a, a modern town, you had to have a sighting. That became part of having, like, fresh drinking water and paved streets. Having a sighting also showed that you were <laughs> on the cusp of the modern era. Wow. Exactly. Now, in terms of what people can can document, at least, the only thing that we know for sure that was happening in multiple sites at multiple times, sometimes on the same day, was the creation of these stories about the airships themselves. How would you describe the media's role in disseminating these stories about airships and their sightings? Well, the media had a tremendous influence. And within a week of the, uh, the first reports in California, the uh, newspapers in New York were publishing uh, fanciful pictures of what the thing supposedly looked like. And they never looked like flying saucers in the way we imagine from 1950s-era no. movies, I suppose. I no, not in the least. Right. These were very much uh, uh, products of their time. And uh, the 19th century was a time of remarkable inventions that just kept popping up all the time. Right. You know, marvels like uh, steamships, uh, Railroad engines, Mm -hmm. telegraph, light bulb, phonograph, motion pictures, uh, telephone. But the one thing that didn't appear was the thing that they expected, which was the successful machine that would navigate the air. And I'm still waiting for my flying cars, by the way, which we thought we were going to get at the 21st century. That's right. This is a pattern. (laughs) That's right. This is disappointing. But it wasn't for lack of trying. Fair enough. People were always inventing flying machines, mm-hmm. and the newspapers would report, you know, so-and-so, you know, local boy, uh, has a flying machine in his uh, barn, and he's going to try it out someday soon, which, of course, always just crashed or just sat on the ground. Mm. But uh, there was some progress being made, like by the mid-1850s, there were cigar-shaped balloons with some kind of uh, propellers driving it. And it could go a short distance if there was no wind resisting it, but it wasn't really a successful flying machine. Mm. What they were seeing or thought they were seeing in 1896-1897 was based on these these models. So I have to know, were, were there ever any actual airships found? Or how, how do you even explain this wave of stories? I mean, was there evidence of these airships being real? Well... My opinion of this is that there was not any sort of real, genuine UFO or any even a a real flying machine. Most of these things were the planet Venus or Mars. It's pretty demonstrable. In many cases, uh, newspapers who were not uh, believers in it would point out that there were a bunch of people standing on the street pointing at the planet Venus and saying, uh, hey, look at that airship. How? If you get a little bit of uh, thin clouds moving across uh, the face of, of uh, Venus, it can look like it's moving. It, uh. it's, it's like the, uh, the racing moon effect. If you're uh, sometimes, you know, clouds passing across the face of the moon. Right. If, if your perspective is just right then you will see the moon, the clouds are standing still and the moon moving. Ah. But then there were a lot of stories that were hoaxes. A lot of uh, 
like a lot of in a lot of towns where people just wanted to have an airship, somebody would come in and say, "Hey, I saw the airship," and the, you know, it would it would that's be all it took. Yeah, that's all all they needed. <laughs> and then in other cases, there would be these really elaborate stories, like the the uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, a farmer in Kansas, who said an airship came down one night, and it was three hundred feet long, and there were these strange creatures apparently from another planet, shining a searchlight around. And they lassoed one of his cows, carried it up in the air, and went out of sight. And uh, the next day, somebody found the, uh, a dead, or the skin of a, of a dead calf in a, a field, a dusty field, but there were no mm. footprints around it. Mm. So it turns out that Hamilton uh, was a... Uh, member of a local liars club. There's actually a club for people yeah, who yeah. don't tell the truth. <laughs> right. And it was it consisted of the most distinguished uh, people in the area. I mean, ha- Hamilton had been a state legislator at one point, and uh, the more elaborate stories tended to be the fakes. Right, right. And, and it bears pointing out that journalism itself does not have a set of industry standards for verifying a lot of these stories, right? That as a field, journalism at this same time is figuring out its own editorial standards, I'm guessing. Right. The standards were, if it sells, it's good. Now, now there were some newspapers that had more integrity than that, but the, the ones that were more likely to promote the airship were ones that were uh, more interested in uh, attracting uh, readers. And Fake uh, stories were commonplace in those days. They were taken for granted. They were a form of entertainment. Right. Tall tales were just very popular. Mm-hmm. And it's old newspapers. So if you got airships to work with, <laughs> go with the airships. So, so Thomas, there, it sounds like there's a, a pattern both in terms of the way that newspapers are describing some of these sightings and the ways in which people are talking about them with each other. What do we know about how people in America observed unexplainable objects in the sky? How did they tend to talk about them? What would be the common grammar that people use to describe these objects? Well, these uh, these 1890s sightings are dependent in part on uh, the conditions in America. Mm -hmm. People have always had some notion of uh, unusual flying objects or flying, not necessarily flying machines, but something unusual that would be in the air. In the very early days, uh, people used the religious framework where you have uh, like uh, Increase Mather who wrote a a book called uh, An Essay for Recording of Illustrious Providences, and it included strange sights in the sky, but they were always interpreted in a religious light. And then you come to the uh, 18th century, early 19th century, it was all some kind of anomalous natural phenomenon. The northern lights as one example. Right, yeah. Right. And as you get into the later 19th century, then technology becomes the the dominant template for Mm -hmm. understanding. In the 1890s, the belief system is that there's a flying machine that has just been invented. It's the fulfillment of that, uh, that wish, that desire, a realization of that expectation. Right. It was optimism.
Thomas Bullard is the author of The Myth and Mystery of UFOs. Okay, everyone, there's another news item from the Sacramento Bee I want to share with you. Hey, Nathan, do you read anything <laughs> except the Sacramento Bee? It's a fine paper, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> this is a quote from an article that was published in July of 1947. The many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the intelligence officer of the 309th Atomic Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force was fortunate to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers and the sheriff's office of Chavez County. This is actually a quote from Lieutenant Warren Hott, who was the public information officer at the nearby Roswell Air Force Base. That's right, Roswell. This is mm. Roswell, New Mexico. Oh, yeah, okay. The plot thickens. <laughs> and I see why you used the past tense, was a public relations officer, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nathan, do we know what they actually found there? Well, according to the military, the very next day, they released a contrary report that they found a weather balloon instead of a flying saucer. There were later reports that came out about a project called Project Mogul, that where the military was using the official line on this, is that it was a balloon used in nuclear testing. But the cat was already out of the bag in terms of the rumor mill that had been stoked by the re initial report. And then the retraction, because it's the retraction that caused many to believe that this was the beginning of a government cover-up. And for decades after this finding, there would be concerns that the military's principal relationship to UFOs was to conceal their existence and conceal the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Well, Nathan, what makes your story even more dramatic is you're talking about perhaps the high point of American faith in government. Mm -hmm. We had just won World War II. We developed this super weapon, the atomic bomb, that was done by a $2 billion government project. But here's the thing. That government project, the Manhattan Project, was top secret. Even the vice president didn't know about it while it was happening. So the government, which did have a lot of uh, credibility with the people was kind of setting itself up for a big fall just because it had to keep so much secret. So why not this? <laughs> Do we think that the, all of that stuff about atomic bombs and stuff might have made people more willing to believe that yes. there was all kinds of stuff about space and science? Who knew that you could incapacitate an entire city with one bomb before that atomic bomb was revealed? This All of a sudden, the idea that anything was possible was very much on the table. But here's the thing, Brian. I mean, I, I like a, a good historian, um, like to fashion myself as an appropriate cynic. And when it comes to not just, you know, conspiracy theories, but, you know, general information. However, the military itself begins to take concerns about UFOs quite seriously. In 1947, at the end of the year, they open up a new project where committee members begin to report formally that flying saucers are indeed real. There's actually cases that are opened by the Army and the, and the Air Force that get opened and then closed when findings don't 
actually advance the notion that this is simply a conspiracy. So there's a conflict among military officials about whether or not UFOs are indeed a real thing. Fast forward into and through 1948, a series of sightings, not by ranchers or you know farmers, but by Air Force pilots who are seeing unidentified flying objects. Again, that term entering the kind of formal parlance at this time. They're See, seeing man, them... there's not a, an acronym for that. <laughs> right. They're, they're, seeing, they're seeing UFOs over Fort Knox in Kentucky. They're seeing it in Montgomery, Alabama, over Fargo, North Dakota. And there are even multiple sightings over Washington, D.C. itself. All this to say that by the time you get to the early 1950s and into the 1960s, there's a formal investigation called Project Blue Book that's initiated to make sure that they are documenting and keeping track of all of these various sightings coming from everyday citizens, but also from military officials themselves. Well, Nathan... (laughs) There are a lot of Americans who do believe this stuff. That's not to say that the military believes they're UFOs. They simply are doing their due diligence and carrying out their committee work to demonstrate that UFOs are not real. Well, the problem with that theory... This is some tough debate going on here, I tell you. The problem with that theory is that the military not only has to go out of its way to police its own officials and try to create a story that it believes will be considered credible by the broader population, it's that you have to have, by the late 1960s, an entirely new report written by another committee (laughs) to simply settle this debate. Believe it or not, a 650-page report (laughs) released in 1968 by a group called the Condon Committee, which is led by a physicist named Edward Condon. Know him well. (laughs) And this is the critical passage that I think leaves it both settled and completely unsettled on the question of UFOs. Our general conclusion is that nothing has come from the study of UFOs in the past 21 years that had added to scientific knowledge. Careful consideration of the record as it is available to us leads us to conclude that further extensive study of UFOs probably cannot be justified in the expectation that science will be advanced thereby. Oh, Nathan, my earthling friend, (laughs) you have just put your finger on the problem of proving a negative which is going to play an incredibly important role in ensuing debates between the public and science about the safety of all kinds of things, about whether the SST, the plane that you know broke the sound barrier, uh, is going to fly without creating sonic booms, about whether pesticides can be used, and about proper amounts of radiation that might leak out of nuclear power plants. It's called doubt science. And I will give you this. I never knew that the origins of doubt science lay in the military in the whole UFO story. I know that's not what you wanted to teach me, but I am impressed. (laughs) So it's kind of like the origins of climate denial? Exactly. Wow. Or tobacco being harmful or not. This is all of those people trying to prove that something might not be dangerous, for instance, all of their arguments turn on, well, 
you know, some form of you can't prove a negative. So there's no evidence that listening to podcasts actually increases your IQ? (laughs) That's the one exception, Ed. (laughs) Although the podcast you listen to needs to be backstory. Ed, Brian, citizens of the universe, recording angels, we have returned to claim the pyramids, partying on the mothership. Party on, Nathan. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Those are actually the lyrics from a 1975 Parliament concept album, Mothership Connection. And according to our next guest, it had some heavenly inspiration. George Clinton said that that he and Bootsy Collins were on the way from from a concert when they encountered what he describes as a UFO. This is Louisiana State University scholar Stephen Finley. When they were brought back to themselves, it was several hours later, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and their watches weren't working, right? They, mm-hmm. were, they, were, they were stuck a few hours early. And knowing that, that he and Bootsy Collins are musicians, George Clinton is, is really clear to note that they were not drinking and they were not <laughs> under the influence of substances, right? And he's really clear right. about that because he's right. serious about this, and he right. wants to be taken seriously. Clinton isn't the only famous black musician to describe this kind of experience. Charlemagne the God, Prodigy, and poet and jazz musician Sun Ra claim to have had close encounters as well. Uh, Sun Ra also claims to have uh, made sort of a trip uh, to have been taken somewhere, which for him was near Saturn. Uh, for uh, Sun Ra, black people are part of this angel race, okay. um, which, is, which is cosmic. As with many of these groups, uh, blackness sort of is the, the originary uh, state uh, of, of the universe. Finley says this idea of cosmic blackness is not just found in celebrity narratives. Texas-based twin sisters, Erlene and Sherlene Wallace, described being taken in the 1990s by friendly aliens called Galactics. But when you get them to describe the Galactics, they say that the Galactics appear to them as beautiful black women. He says these stories collectively form a distinct and separate African-American UFO experience, one that's often left out of mainstream ufology, or the study of UFOs. Now, most of the narratives share similarities. They're often tied to religion and spirituality. The aliens are usually black and evoke Africa or a symbolic homeland. There are certain things that I see that show up in Mm -hmm. the narratives Mm -hmm. of African-Americans who have claimed to have had UFO experiences or what others might call abductions, including not using terms like abduction. That's not an African-American UFO tradition (laughs) term, for example. So what are some of the component parts of those narratives? If they're not talking about abductions, for instance, what are some of the Mm -hmm. words that they are using? So for Erlene and Sherlene, i.e. the UFO twins, they use the term trip, and they mean that in a positive way. Hmm. Because in the African-American UFO tradition, these accounts are not seen as adversarial or terrifying. In fact, they're almost universally described as friendly. 
Mm-hmm. And that's one of the primary differences between the African-American accounts and the white ones, which are always, almost always terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. The um, scenes of uh, uh, abduction and— Experimentation. Uh, experimentation, right? Mm-hmm. Sexual surgeries, all those mm-hmm. kind of things. You don't find mm-hmm. those in, in the black accounts. Now, I have to ask this. Is that perhaps because the African-American tradition also includes— Actual abductions, mass abductions, experimentations, certainly, you know, violations of one's sexual autonomy by way of the Middle Passage and the slave trade. Is it your sense that these narratives about unidentified flying objects are, in a way, a Uh departure from what's already a set of dominant themes within African-American history? Mm -hmm. You're making the same connection that some scholars, uh, including myself, make. Mm Mm-hmm. Think about Africa uh, during the slave trade, and all of a sudden, you know, here come these these beings from these ships who have come across the ocean, and all of a sudden, they capture you and whisk you away mm-hmm. to a new land where you become the alien other. And so it, it could be that that's one of the reasons why these narratives get ex- described the way they do. But but the other reason is, is because these UFO traditions are also closely related to black supernatural traditions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For African-Americans, generally, the supernatural isn't spooky, right? Ancestors hang around. They help us. They participate and break into, you know, this reality in sort of a regular way. So it's possible then that what you have are a set of ideas about paranormal activity that African-Americans, that African-descended peoples, certainly different peoples on the continent itself, already have a language for describing. And that by the time you get to the 20th century, the language about UFOs becomes part of that tradition? Is that what you're suggesting? Well, yeah, that's part of part of what I'm suggesting. I mean, this is this is how traditionally African Americans and Africans engage the world. I mean, the supernatural isn't something so wholly other and spooky. It's mm-hmm. a part of the sort of natural metaphysics. I mean, it is part of the real world, mm-hmm. right? And so there's not this, again, to use the term holy other, that the right. supernatural is this, this, this realm that's so distinctly different from this one. It's all part of the world in which we live. Well, give me an example of an early account of an African-American encounter with the UFO. Well, what I'll give you is what I think is the most famous one. Mm-hmm. So the Nation of Islam starts around 1930. Um, it's unclear that they're talking about UFOs that early, but by the 19, early 1950s, they clearly are. Mm-hmm. One of the ways then that UFOs show up in uh, one of the present iterations of the, of the Nation of Islam under uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan is that on September 17th, 1985, he claims to have been taken into what he calls the mother wheel. It's an unidentified flying object. And those are his words. This vehicle came came down, and there were three lights from it, and took him into uh, that particular vehicle, where he says he encountered his former leader, Elijah Muhammad, mm-hmm. inside the craft. And so that account is really important for the Nation of Islam. Mm -hmm. One cannot properly understand the Nation of Islam without giving serious theoretical attention to the role that UFOs play in in the religion. 
And part of the power of these narratives is that they're actually based in religious texts and holy texts, correct? That it's not, it's not just about science fiction literature or even, you know, Cold War era science fiction television, but that there is actually a biblical basis for many of these narratives that African-Americans are sharing. There, there is, but I also think it's all of that. Uh, mm. I also do think that it's, um, it's science, it's science fiction, it's biblical texts, and then— I would say that they're either used to sort of inaugurate what I call a sense of transcendent blackness or to deconstruct notions of race. Right, right. Now, now this is really an important point because so much of what in the mainstream society gives blackness meaning is, of course, people of African descent encounter with the institution of slavery, with Jim Crow, with That's different right. forms of racism, that there's a relationship between the way that African-Americans form their identities as human beings and as communities and the realities of discrimination. And by using the phrase transcendent blackness, you're actually talking about a kind of blackness that derives its meaning outside of the parameters of white racism. Is that correct? You got it. I mean, I don't even have to explain it. You've, you've clearly said it. And okay. so it seems to me that part of why that's so significant is because the world is seen as so completely and almost totalizingly anti-black that, that the mm. structures here cannot support anything but, but anti-blackness. And so what do they do? They look out into the heavens to give them a sense of meaning in the concrete world, mm. right, in a way that allows them to re-envision who they are, to, to empower themselves in a world that they see as, as against them, as, as negating, as anti-black, and so on. So it's all about this world, but the other world and the imagination and the narratives and the symbols gives them the strength and power to live in this world. Stephen C. Finley is a religious scholar in African and African-American studies at Louisiana State University. I think it's pretty safe to assume that most people won't accept the existence of UFOs without physical proof. <laughs> Got that right, Nathan. But to many people who study these phenomena, looking for scientific evidence of UFOs is kind of beside the point. I think science is our new mythology and our, mm. and, and our new authority about what is real and what isn't. This is Jeffrey Kripal, the historian of religion whom we heard earlier in the show. And, of course, the problem is is not everything can be fit into that paradigm either. It, right. It, other things slip out of it. And I think the UFO phenomenon is one of those things that slips out of that paradigm. Kripal has studied close encounters throughout history and considers them intensely spiritual experiences. They're not all the same. You know, they're, they're very, very different. And contrary to what people think, um, they're seen all over the world. Uh, they're not just seen by uneducated or simple people. They're also seen by world-class scientists and military people. They're not rare. They're extremely common. And, and by groups of people, not just individuals. And, and they're often seen in groups and in broad daylight. Yeah. 
you know, mm. as a historian of religions, um, which is what I am and do, um, what you see in history is people encountering some kind of ball of light or or energy or some presence and getting then zapped or or beamed by that light and having some kind of profound transformation happen. So the, the general phenomenology is something uh, bizarre or even absurd comes from the sky. Sometimes it's machine-like, sometimes it's, it's plasma-like or a ball of light, and it interacts with particular human beings and completely changes how they think of the world. And then those individuals become prophets or, or mystics or saints or, or what have you. I mean, that's the general pattern. Um, but these are really extreme events often, and I really want to emphasize they're not just going on in the heads of people. Right. Right. I, we're not, Nate. We're not talking about chairs or or cannonballs here that everyone can agree on what they look like and where they are. <laughs> we're, we're we're talking about some kind of weird, real, unreal event that, when it interacts with human brains and bodies, appears differently to different right. brains and bodies. So we're talking about some kind of energetic presence that is interacting with this primate biology of ours and essentially tripping it in different ways. Got it. If you got it, you're a better man than I am. <laughs> <laughs> so give me, give me a sense. You, you mentioned that some of these accounts were considered absurd. What were some of the examples of that? Well, I think the, the unbelievability or absurdity of these experiences are often the reasons people don't report them. Mm. Um, so, you know, simple things like the object moving at speeds and turning at angles that would kill any human occupant if it was a craft, for example. Mm. Or the craft uh, disappears instantly or, or emerges into three different craft and then fuses back together. Um, those are all impossible things for a machine. Or in terms of the encounters, you know, uh, you know, being given pancakes to eat or uh, something to drink or given bizarre answers, you know, like I'll be in Kansas yesterday or uh, <laughs> I'm from everywhere, you know. I mean, right. just, you know, we, we have accounts actually in the 19th century of, of ships in the sky who let down anchors. Uh, so... <laughs> You know, they just they become completely unbelievable for us at that point. Mm -hmm. Right. So it sounds as if what we're talking about when we are thinking through Americans grappling with UFOs is really us grappling with ambiguity, right? Us grappling with certain kinds of phenomena that might not be measurable by science or might not be, you know, verifiable in some, you know, even a military report necessarily. And I guess my question would be, you know, in your sense, why does ambiguity relative to UFOs veer toward considering people to be crackpots or veered toward the taboo, whereas we're much more comfortable with ambiguity in realms of religion formally, um, in terms of the Judaic religions, or even in terms of science and in, in, in terms of things we, we do not yet know, that we're comfortable not yet knowing and simply asking more questions? Well, I, I think people are generally really bad at ambiguity, Nate, um, <laughs> uh, including in religion. I mean, fundamentalism is essentially a complete inability to deal with ambiguity right. in, in a religious realm. So, I, uh, yeah, I don't think we've solved that one. Um, I think I think the UFO 
problem is makes the eyes roll for for two reasons. One is there's a confusion between the actual phenomenon and then the mythology that gets wrapped around it. Um, I, you know, I, I'm completely convinced the phenomenon is real. I, I don't believe for a second the mythology that gets wrapped around it. Mm. And I think people are generally unable to draw that distinction. If I could give an example here, I mean, mm. you do get this reading in popular culture that all of these ancient religious events were really just ancient astronauts that were being misperceived by primitive ancients. Mm-hmm. So that is not what I'm saying. Right. <laughs> because right. that's just assuming the mythology of the present and pushing it back <laughs> right. into the past. <laughs> right, 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 right. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work any more mm-hmm. than taking the religious mythology of the past and pushing it forward into the present. What I'm mm. saying is it's, it's all mythology and and— uh, that these these real events are being framed in whatever mythology happens to be in force at the moment. Uh, but in, in some sense, we're all wrong. Mm. So are we still looking at these phenomena with the same frame we developed in the 1950s, basically? I think we are, unfortunately. And I think that's why the eyes roll. Mm. Uh, is because it reminds people of you know the bad science fiction movies of the 1950s, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that those science fiction movies actually inform and shape how people experience the encounters. Right, um, right. You know, I think it's a I think it's a loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the smartest people I know around this is Whitley Strieber, and he said something to a group of us once that has really stuck with me. He said, "Look," he says, "I know." that my experiences that I've written about were all informed by the bad science fiction movies I saw as a kid in the 50s. He said, but I also know that something was real there. And so he says, what we need to do now is make better science fiction movies. <laughs> and we're trying. <laughs> and so that, yeah. but just think about that. That's really yeah. profound. That's a kind yeah. of loop that we're, we're sort of, we're sort of writing ourselves over the decades. And and I think at the moment, we're, we're certainly with the UFO thing, we are not writing ourselves very well. We we, mm. we got to rethink this one, mm-hmm. and and that leads in really to the the other thing I do want to say that I haven't is that I don't take off the table that these presences of of energy and light and and force are are us uh, right. on some other level or some other dimension. I I think they probably are actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you and I dream every night, essentially what we're doing is we're splitting in two and we're telling ourselves a story. But I wake up and I'm like, who the hell was that? And what was that about? And so that felt entirely other, but it was actually me telling right. a story to me. And I, I think a lot of these encounters and abductions are uh, uh, really, really profound dreams like that, that were we're abducting ourselves and we're telling ourselves stories and we're trying to wake up and uh, we can't seem to wake up. Jeffrey Kripal is a professor of religion at Rice University. He's the author of Authors of the Impossible, The Paranormal and the Sacred.
We've heard a bit about how UFOs and spirituality intersect, but there are a few examples more notorious than the movement known as Heaven's Gate. In 1997, 39 members of the group committed suicide. They believe that once they killed themselves, a UFO trailing behind the Hale-Bopp comet would transport their souls to a very literal heaven in outer space. The incident made headlines around the world, and almost as quickly it became a late-night punchline. The members who sported matching tracksuits and sneakers had recorded messages explaining their beliefs that they would be starting new lives aboard an alien spacecraft. But when the movement began, their message had resonated strongly with other Americans. They would uh, go and put up posters. Uh, A poster would say, um, find out about UFOs, and they would hold these meetings. Big headline grabber, basically. (laughs) It is, yeah, giant, giant, you know, the big font. That's religious scholar Benjamin Zeller. He says that when the group first emerged in the 1970s, those posters worked. Heaven's Gate's message that UFOs would bring spiritual salvation attracted hundreds of members. At its peak, it's estimated that around 1,000 people were part of the movement. Zeller says that's not surprising in an era when Americans were experimenting with all sorts of spiritual practices, from yoga and healing crystals to new interpretations of Christianity and Buddhism. But over the next two decades, The group's message of alien salvation gradually changed, and so did the way their fellow Americans thought about the group and about UFOs. Heaven's Gate began in the 70s as a group trying to figure out the the nature of of the soul and the nature of the self, and as as that related to what they called the next level, which is outer space and, and UFOs and space aliens. Uh, when it began, it was it was two people, Marshall Herf Applewhite and Bonnie Lou Nettles, the two as they called themselves. And they went uh, traveling all through the West Coast, holding these meetings, trying to get people to convert. And they would talk and they would tell you they're from outer space ultimately. And they came from outer space to give us this message about how, how people can be saved, how people can, can live forever and can leave our planet and go into outer space. And they said, if you want to, uh, if you want to join them, then meet up at a campground in a couple of weeks. <laughs> They'd give you an address. Uh, then they'd go to the next town and do the same thing. And uh, lo and behold, they'd get a couple dozen, a couple hundred people to show so, up. So, Ben, there, there's a way that Americans are thinking about UFOs coming out of the 50s and into the 1960s. Just give me a sense of what the conversation is in the 1970s as the Heaven's Gate movement is emerging. What are Americans thinking or reading or believing about UFOs at that time? There are a couple of different strands in UFO thought or ufology in the 1970s. People forget that the government was still having you know, active, uh, active study of whether UFOs were a real phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So this was this was not sort of pseudoscience. One of the the leading and emerging ones at the time is the idea of ancient astronauts of alien visitors who visited humanity thousands of years ago. And humans were unable to to understand the science or technology of it. So they recorded it using the only language that primitive humans had, which was religious language. This idea is best expressed in Eric von Donneken's Chariots of the Gods, a book that tries to document everything from the Incans of, of Peru to ancient people in China and India and the Middle East. Don't forget the pyramids, right? <laughs> and the pyramids. Right. Yeah, we're not going to And the pyramids right. of Egypt. At the time in the 70s, people took this really seriously. In the 1990s or or 2000s or today, we look at this and we say it looks like Stargate. 
if our listeners haven't uh, haven't watched the Stargate movie, and there was a television series spinoff as well, it's about this idea that that the Egyptian gods are basically uh, a misunderstanding of ancient astronauts, and that the if you look at the pyramids, you can figure out the history of this. So Heaven's Gate has some connection to the Bible and, and a set of beliefs that are coming out of the Book of Revelations. And what would you say the beliefs are of the organization at its founding relative to holy texts? At its founding, the two founders believed that they were the two witnesses described in the book of Revelation, chapter 11. And if you don't happen to have your Bible in front of you, that's fine. I'll tell you what it says. Uh, chapter 11 describes how these two witnesses are um, destined to, to preach publicly, and then they're going to be assassinated on the street. And then they're going to become resurrected. They're going to rise from the grave or from the street, and they are going to uh, ascend to heaven. And members of Heaven's Gate believed that their founders were these two witnesses. Their bodies would, would rise from the dead, a UFO would, would come down and hover and pick them up with the tractor beam, and they called this the demonstration. It was the demonstration of two things. Uh, one, that extraterrestrials are real and they have the technology to do this, and two, that we can transcend the human body and the human life and the human earthly existence. Right. What's really important to understand them is they said they didn't believe in this classic image of heaven with clouds and angels with fluffy wings and harps and things like that. They thought that was all, you know, sort of nonsense, that that was all sort of this spiritual stuff. They believed heaven was real. If you had a powerful enough telescope, you could see it. Mm -hmm. Like an actual place. And these UFOs, therefore, weren't just vehicles here for some sort of mundane purpose. They were here for religious or spiritual purposes. They were here to bring knowledge or to fairy beings from our planet into outer space, into heaven. They were the gate to heaven, hence the name Heaven's Gate. Mm. There's a whole range of observed phenomenon that people are trying to explain with the frameworks of their moment, whether it be religious, whether they think about it in terms of science, how do they reconcile a set of religious beliefs with, you know, the way in which people are told and taught that you can only believe in what you can see, touch, and measure. Like, this actually seems as though yeah. it's trying to reconcile these two competing strains. You know, when, when I look at Heaven's Gate, I see people who really wanted to be empiricists, but yeah. also really wanted to believe in the soul. And how do, how do you deal with that, right? And that was their, that was exactly their problem. They wanted to get to outer space. At first, they thought, we're going to physically get on board a spaceship, and we're going to fly there. The spaceship is going to hover mid-atmosphere and pick us up in tractor beams, and we are going to physically go to the next level, and our bodies are going to physically transform they use the words biologically and chemically. Hmm. Our bodies are going to biologically and chemically transform into these perfected next-level creatures. That's what they said initially. What happens is that in June 1985, Bonnie Lou Nettles, the co-founder of the group, dies. And when she dies, uh, no UFO comes to pick her up. Hmm. And there's no physical proof that anything happens to her. I mean, her body is right there. They have to have it cremated. So they come to the conclusion that her spirit, her soul, her consciousness has uploaded back uh -huh. to her next level body. They still claimed it was scientific, even though ideas about soul transfer and consciousness upload don't sound that scientific. For them, they were. They wanted to keep that idea. It was really important for them that their beliefs were scientific, rational, modern. And you mentioned that at the founding of the Heaven's Gate movement, it had some possibly up to upwards of a thousand members, but those numbers were not sustained by the time you get to the 1990s. What happened? 
They were really a group which which emerged out of the 1970s. And by the 80s and 90s, they have a real hard time trying to, to do outreach. They feel as if they're just, just not reaching people anymore. And that's part of the end. That's one of the reasons that the group ultimately decided to end on its own terms is they thought that they had harvested as many souls as they could, that there was almost no one left out there who really was listening to them and was willing to take this step and to try to overcome their humanity. And that's because people in the 90s thought that humanity was pretty good. As you said, <laughs> the economy was going well, right. um, the country was at peace. You know, it's, it's a different sort of time. And, and, and by the 1990s, uh, UFOs and space aliens were part of late night television. They were part of a, the running joke. Uh, there were the, you know, the alien autopsy videos. They were part of the X-Files. It had moved from the heart of culture to a subculture into popular culture. And, and that's part of the problem for them. What drove members of the group to commit suicide in 1997? So at the end of the group in 1997, so first of all, that they had become completely frustrated with trying to reach out and, and gain converts or even, even, even gain a fair hearing. They, they became a, a joke. Mm. They also at the same time became increasingly interested in conspiracy theories. In, in the 1990s, they latched onto conspiracy theories because members of Heaven's Gate believed that UFOs were real. And they believed there was a government conspiracy to, to, to hide the existence of UFOs. And they became deeply invested in this idea that behind Hellbop Comet, there was a trailing UFO mm -hmm. and NASA was covering it up. They believed it. Wow. When it got to the point when members of Heaven's Gate were ready to commit suicide, what was the theological or scientific explanation for that? Uh, members of Heaven's Gate, uh, like people of many religions, believe that the body ultimately was less important than the soul, right. or the spirit, the mind. They believed that by killing their human vehicles— uh, they were freeing their souls to evolve and to gain extraterrestrial vehicles, which were frankly superior in their minds. They thought that extraterrestrial vehicles didn't age, they didn't die, they didn't need to eat. This was perfection for them. They were becoming extraterrestrial angels. If you really believe that, it makes sense to them. I'm not saying I want to do it. I'm not saying anyone should do it. I'm just saying it made sense to them. Right. What about the Heaven's Gate movement and about the larger history of UFOs? Um, what, do, what do we learn about the limits of rationality and things beyond what we can explain from this moment in history? Heaven's Gate was in some ways speaking only to its moment, but in, the other, in some other ways it's, it's speaking to a, a long-standing wish that human beings have had to, to make meaning and to look to the stars for meaning. We see this in culture. We've seen it for thousands of years. Heaven's Gate is just one more example of that. Benjamin Zeller is a professor of religion at Lake Forest College and author of Heaven's Gate, America's UFO Religion. You know, as somebody who knows about UFOs mainly through old science fiction movies that I watched sitting in front of the TV on Saturday afternoons when it was raining, I have to admit that I learned a lot from this show. I always thought it was just really about science and the Cold War, but I've seen a lot of other perspectives as well. Yeah, Ed, I'm one of those classic skeptics that just, you know, 
buys into that scientific framework whole hog and <laughs> throw in a throw in a heavy dose of secrecy and Cold War America and what else is there to explain? Except I was very taken by the racial perspective on UFOs. Uh, I mean, I always thought UFOs, you know, some kind of invasion from out there can't end up in anything good. But that interview that Nathan did really taught me that if you take a racial perspective, if you frame this along racial lines, actually the reactions of African-American musicians uh, have given a very, very different spin to UFOs, very different than that science, technology, secrecy framework. Well, that's, that's the thing about even the African-American reference, right, is that, you know, it's really a, as much about community as anything. Um, and it really connects in a powerful way to a spiritual frame or, or a way in which people imagined objects in the sky to be extensions of communities on the ground. I mean, there are references in the Bible that people have long pointed to as being the existence of something beyond the human experience. We call them miracles in one era, UFOs in the next. Or even, you know, John Winthrop, the famous Puritan lawyer, writes in his journal in 1639 about seeing objects in the sky that we would basically call a UFO experience from colonial America. Um, so it ought not surprise us that people are bringing a lens that is religious and spiritual and by its very nature, a kind of communitarian vision to this idea of UFOs, the paranormal, or possibly even folks from outer space. To go back to your beloved Sacramento Bee, <laughs> I mean, you're talking about all of these small towns, communities, at the beginning of the 20th century that kind of sense their no longer really mainstream America and very eager to become a part of mainstream America. But what I loved also about that story of even small-town America is that people are also thinking about secrecy. They're thinking about possibility in the future. I mean, in that case, it's about folks who might be secretly inventing the next wave of technological innovation, right? Yeah, so it's not yeah. government secrets, but the secrets of that dentist down the, down the road with that big barn, and you don't know what he's building <laughs> in there. I mean, there's a sense of mystery Did about that. Did you say that. building or billing? <laughs> you know, and something else that really struck me in those interviews was the convergence of spirituality and technology. Things that we often think may be diametrically opposed actually seem to be merging quite often in these interviews. And two of those things merged uh, in the century you're so familiar with, Ed, the 19th century. It wasn't long after the invention of the telegraph with all these words uh, invisibly flying over the wires. <laughs> right, right. Uh, that people began to connect that with a real spirituality, quite literally getting in touch with spirits who had passed beyond, people who had died. And you know, Brian, in our own time, the manifestation of that blurring between the spiritual and the technological and extraterrestrial are in some of the most popular movies of mm -hmm. a few decades ago, E.T., the extraterrestrial, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. In both of those, there is a sort of an odd sense of worlds beyond our own that maybe have a spiritual dimension. I have to agree with you, Ed, that the first thing that comes to mind when I and most people tend to think about UFOs is science fiction. It's popular culture. And one of the consequences of that is that almost by default, we then frame anything that falls into that category as being fantastical or, you know, dare one say, fictitious. Um, but I think it's, it's also 
very clear that regardless of if our reference is pop culture or if it's, you know, the history of UFOs by way of reading the Sacramento Bee, right, that <laughs> UFOs have a history, whether you believe in them or not. Um, and I think that fact really is a powerful reminder of, you know, one, that people constantly have frames that themselves have limitations in whatever era that they live, and that maybe perhaps our current frame, in spite of all of its science and certainty, certainly certainty that comes from a position of faith, may not be able to account for everything that exists out there or even between us. That's going to do it for us today. But you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Robin Blue, Anjali Bishosh, Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Courtney Spagna, and Aaron Teeley. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in the episode came from Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Jazar. Special thanks this week to Andrew Parsons, Brendan Wolf, and as always, the Johns Hopkins Studios in Baltimore. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.